Hey there, it's me, Jesse Tyler Ferguson, that redheaded actor from Modern Family. I have a podcast. It's combining a couple of my favorite things, talking and food. Please join me as I dine with the biggest names in entertainment, people like Julie Bowen, Kristen Bell, Fred Armisen, and so many more. It's called Dinners on Me, and you're invited. Am I saying a chocolate souffle is going to get me to reveal all of my secrets? Yeah, I am. Listen now, wherever you get your podcasts. It was just last week that President Trump was acquitted by the Senate in his impeachment trial. And yet in that short time, we've seen a lot of action out of the White House. Several officials who testified against Trump in the House inquiry have been reassigned or fired. And so we send him on his way to a much different location. And uh, the military can handle him any way they want. Uh, The Justice Department changed its sentencing recommendation for Trump's longtime friend, Roger Stone, after Trump complained publicly that it was unfair. Trump even went on to attack the judge involved in the case and the prosecutors who resigned in protest of Trump's perceived intervention. I thought the recommendation was ridiculous. I thought the whole prosecution was ridiculous. Since his acquittal, Trump also publicly criticized Senator Mitt Romney for voting to convict him on abuse of power, sending talking points critical of the Utah senator directly from the White House. And then you have some that used religion as a crutch. They never used it before. An article written today, never heard him use it before. But today, you know, it's one of those things. But, you know, it's a failed presidential candidate, so things can happen when you fail so badly running for president. The president has even proposed new border wall funding, despite pushback from GOP members of Congress for using emergency powers to move money toward his wall in the past. We're putting out a plan today that over a period of not that long a period of time uh, brings our, our budget and our deficit down to what it should be, which is close to zero. And Trump's done all of this while continuing to actively name-call and insult his Democratic opponents on Twitter and at rallies in states where Democratic primaries are happening. That was so of Bloomberg. Look, he's a lightweight. He's a lightweight. You're going to find that out. He's also one of the worst debaters I've ever seen. Now, this isn't a comprehensive list of Trump's actions since his acquittal little more than a week ago, but it is a pretty long one. And while these actions individually show sides of Trump we've seen before, together they seem to paint a picture of a president who feels emboldened by the resolution of his months-long impeachment battle. So how emboldened is Trump? Are we likely to see more actions that push the bounds of presidential power as we move forward in an election year? And if an impeachment process and pressure from Republican senators and controversy over his perceived interference with the Justice Department don't seem to challenge Trump's view of a unilaterally powerful president, what can? This is Can He Do That, a podcast exploring the powers and limitations of the American presidency and what happens when branches of government collide. I'm Allison Michaels. Ashley Parker is a White House reporter for The Washington Post. She's been going to Trump rallies and covering the president since he was a candidate. I asked her if, based on her years of reporting on Trump, whether this moment in time seems to reflect a president more emboldened than before. Throughout Trump's presidency, there's a number of times where we've sort of noted to ourselves and written stories that, gosh, he seems emboldened, and this is certainly one of those times. Does it seem like he has pushed things further than usual? Does it seem his acquittal has empowered him to do things? In certain ways, 
Yeah, absolutely. There often is an inflection point where he he's waiting until a certain thing happens or doesn't happen where he can take the action he really wants to take. One thing that comes to mind is he had long wanted to fire his first attorney general, Jeff Sessions. He tweeted about him. He publicly and privately berated him and humiliated him. And then he waited until basically two or three days after the 2018 midterms where he felt like he could finally do it. This feels like he was furious with these people who had testified against him in impeachment, furious with these people who he he felt had been insufficiently loyal. And now that the inquiry has come to a close and come to a close that in his mind is quite favorable to him, although I want to be clear here, being impeached, even if you are acquitted, is not a good thing to have happen to your presidency. He he very quickly took these actions. We had heard before the Senate voted that he was likely to do it, but I was still stunned by just how quickly these moves were made some that very same week. As has been the case throughout his presidency, there are these individual moments, but when we look at them cumulatively, they can paint a fuller picture of what's happening at the White House. So let's do that. Trump last Friday, as you said, fired EU Ambassador Gordon Sondland and reassigned Lieutenant Colonel Alexander Vindman and his twin brother, who was also a lieutenant colonel. These are people that testified against the president in the impeachment trial. That seems like it's pretty clear retribution. Does Trump see it that way? I think he does. And you have to look no further than a posting his son, Donald Trump Jr., made where he basically in a tongue in cheek way said, you know, we want to thank you, Adam Schiff, for all your good investigating. How else would we have known who to fire? So it's clear how Trump world sees this. It's also worth noting, for instance, in the case of Gordon Sondland. He especially had some protectors um, in Republican senators who basically didn't want Sondland to have to go out when Vindman did or when the Vindmans rather, since it was him and his twin brother, and seem part of a purge. And they had quietly asked the White House, you know, can he just resign a couple weeks later on his own for some separation? And the president said, you know, no, I want him gone. And Sondland made it clear that if the president wanted him gone, he would have to fire him. And the president did just that. It's also worth noting what's happening with the Vimmons is also fairly symbolic and intentional. Vinman had asked to be reassigned these NSC postings there not, you know, they're not lifetime postings. These officials often cycle out after a year or two, and Vimin had basically asked to be moved to a different a different detail, basically. And that was happening. That was going to happen very soon. And rather than just let that play its course out, the president made sure to do it right after impeachment and have him and his brother escorted off the White House premises. So I think it's very clear that the president views this in terms of retribution. Does Trump see that retribution as a problem in any way, or is this just part of his greater leadership style? I think on the whole, this is part of the president's leadership style. He likes to keep the people in his orbit um, a little off balance. And, you know, one way he does that, for instance, is he has all of these acting cabinet secretaries. He has an acting chief of staff who's been acting for, I believe, over a year. He wants people sort of constantly fighting for his loyalty and for his approval, and he pits them against one of each other. And one key way to both put people on notice and keep them off balance is for these public displays of what happens if you're not loyalty. And I think people can look at what happened following impeachment, and the answer is very clear. If you cross the president or if he believes that you had have crossed him, a lot of these people would say, we were just 
doing our duty. We were subpoenaed. We were sworn under oath. We, you know, we had to show up when we were subpoenaed by Congress. We had to testify. We had to flag, in the case of uh, Vindman, we had to flag wrongdoing where we see it. That is our duty to Constitution and to country. But in the president's eyes, these were people who were disloyal. These were people who crossed him. And he wants to be clear that if you do that, there will be consequences. Now, there haven't been that many impeachments in history, but based on past impeachments, it's certainly unusual to sort of go after those who testified against you in the immediate aftermath of of your acquittal. Are there risks when a president exacts this very public sort of revenge on perceived enemies within his own administration? Potentially. And in a more traditional administration, Democratic or Republican, I think the answer would be Absolutely. But, you know, you're seeing very few Republicans who control the Senate pushing back on this. They may be uncomfortable privately. They may wish that what they said publicly, that the president has learned his lesson, happened to be true. But there is no real institutional arm that is placing a check on this president right now, in part because his party controls the Senate and they're very unwilling to cross him on anything, in part, perhaps, because they look at what has happened to other people who have crossed him. I think the real question is, is there a risk among voters? And and the key risk, the only thing he cares about would be on Election Day. And I don't think we will know until then. Okay, so one other area where he's breaking precedence is around the relationship between the president and the Justice Department. Can you walk me through what happened this week as Justice Department prosecutors initially made a recommendation in the sentencing of Roger Stone, who's Trump's ally and friend? Sure. It was a fascinating, I feel like 24 hours, maybe 24, 36 hours. I believe at some point on Monday, the Justice Department had made a recommendation for how long Roger Stone should be sentenced. And their recommendation was seven to nine years. And some people thought that was a little high, but they had explained their reasoning as to why they felt this was an appropriate recommendation. And so what happens is Tuesday morning, the president gets up and he tweets about how unfair and outrageous these seven to nine years are. For Roger Stone. And let's keep in mind, Roger Stone is a longtime friend and confidant of the president's um, going back decades. And he was also someone who, though he had no official role in the campaign, was very close to the president and was very involved in the effort to get damaging material from Russia on Hillary Clinton. Shortly after the president tweets about this, the Justice Department senior officials come in and basically supersede the recommendation and say they're making a new recommendation for less time, which is incredibly unprecedented for senior Justice Department officials to undermine what their prosecutors have recommended. And so all four prosecutors on this case withdraw from the case. One of them actually resigned from the Justice Department entirely. It it basically looks as though the president has said something and Attorney General Barr and senior Justice Department officials have reacted because they do this just hours after the president makes a public proclamation of what he wants in this case. The president has He initially said he in no way communicated what he wanted to the Justice Department. A spokesperson, a spokeswoman for the Justice Department said they were not uh, acting on what the president had said. The president is known to say things that are false and simply not true. And at the very least, the timing of it and the sequence of it gives, again, at the very least, the appearance of impropriety. And then after all of that... The Justice Department said their decision, their recommendation had nothing to do with what the president wants. The president tweets out something else that complicates things for his Justice Department, where he basically congratulates Attorney General Barr for doing what he had asked him to do. 
If you're looking for a smoking gun, I can absolutely guarantee you, you will not find it. In October 2001, a series of letters filled with a deadly powder called anthrax were dropped into the U.S. mail system. What started as an unprecedented case turned into an unsettling mystery. Who sent these deadly letters? And why? From Campside Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Josh Dean, and this is Cover Up Season 4, The Anthrax Threat, available now. And can the resignations of these prosecutors be interpreted as an objection to the Justice Department seeming to bend the president? They absolutely can, or at least to the senior officials in the Justice Department interfering with this case and seeming to do the president's bidding. They, of course, didn't say that in their withdrawals, but that is universally how it's being viewed. Attorney General Barr has since pushed back on this idea of having done the president's bidding. He he told ABC News in an interview Thursday that he won't be bullied or influenced by anybody. He said that President Trump's constant background commentary about the Justice Department make it impossible for him to do his job. So, so he's been pretty outspoken against the idea that he's doing Trump's bidding. But over the past few days, has Trump himself acknowledged this perceived conflict in any way? Not really. He's been asked about it. And when he was asked about it, he said... You know, he he did not urge the Justice Department to do this, but he also said, but I could have if I wanted to. It's certainly my right. And again, when we're talking about him being emboldened, he sends out this tweet Tuesday. If you believe everyone's story, and again, this is a White House that often does not tell the truth, but if you believe everyone's story, it's just a really bad coincidence of timing that makes both the president and his Justice Department look utterly conflicted, but there's no wrongdoing. But with those set of facts, the president wakes up the next day and again sends out that tweet we just discussed where he congratulates Attorney General Barr for basically doing his Bidding. And so so I think it's a president who who feels emboldened and doesn't really care what people think. And he is frankly happy that his Justice Department is doing exactly what he wants it to do, whether or not he's specifically ordered that. So right now, Trump also seems to see the Republicans in the Senate as a group willing to largely do what he wants. And we've seen little evidence that Republicans have been able to do anything with real teeth to limit the president. So how might this affect some of the reelection campaigns of Republican senators? Essentially, what are the consequences for these senators voting with the president or defending the president when their respective home states have have differing needs from what Trump's positions call for? It seems as if now, with a few notable exceptions, there's a lot of senators, Republican senators, who are up for re-election in states that Hillary Clinton won in 2016. And so normally, the way you handle that is you run pretty close to the president in the primary, where you're trying to avoid a primary challenge from your right. And then you move back to the middle, where you try to distance yourself from the president a little bit and try to take a more nuanced position. But one thing we saw with impeachment was that just about Nobody did that. It seems that almost every single Republican senator has made the calculation that their political fortunes are tied to this president, that they cannot afford alienating his base, which in many ways at this point is the Republican Party base. They cannot afford him sending out a nasty tweet or showing up in their state and holding a rally where he trashes them. And their best bet is to sort of abandon that small sliver of moderates or suburbanites who might feel uncomfortable with the president's policies and just generally tie themselves to him. I mean, not only did you have only one senator voting to convict Donald Trump when it came to impeachment, that was Mitt Romney, who's not up for re-election for four years and is in a very different situation than a lot of his fellow Republicans, but only two senators. You couldn't even get the 
four out of 53 Republican senators to vote to even call to hear more witnesses. Just two voted for more witnesses. And that was emblematic of the president's complete and utter takeover of the Republican Party. Is that a, a red flag for Republican strategists in any way? Do they believe that this is the right approach for the, for almost the entirety of the Republicans in Senate? There There's some strategists who are uncomfortable with this. But on the whole, I think the facts on the ground right now, three years into Trump's presidency, is that this is Trump's Republican Party. When he first took over, they used to act like, well, there's the Republican Party and the president's going to come around to to our ways of doing things. But he is the president and this is his party. And most Republican strategists are willing to get in line with what the president wants. On the point of Mitt Romney, which you brought up a, a little bit ago, He's now a Republican senator who's faced Trump's ire since his vote against the president to convict him on abuse of power in the impeachment trial. What thus far have been the consequences for Romney from within his own party? That's a great question. One we don't fully know the answer to. It's one that Mitt Romney thought very seriously about, not in a way that was going to determine his ultimate vote on impeachment, which he basically said was dictated by the oath he swore to the Constitution and, and to God. And he, he talked about this and kind of grew choked up on the Senate floor. But he is a practicing Mormon. His faith is the most important and defining thing about him. But he said, look, there will be real consequences. In terms of his own party, we don't know. Leader McConnell reached out to him the day after the vote and basically expressed to Romney privately a version of what he had said publicly, which was that he was disappointed and surprised by Romney's vote, but he's in the business of governing. Mitt Romney is part of the Republican conference. He's going to need Mitt Romney's vote. They're going to need to get things done, and he looks forward to working with him. It was a very polite and cordial call. So I think the real consequences so far that we've seen is sort of the general unpleasantness that Mitt Romney may face. He talked about, you know, someone calling him a traitor at the grocery store, someone driving up to him when he was in Florida um, at one of his wife's horse competitions and saying, you know, support the team, get with the program. Some of that light heckling, the White House released talking points against him. The president attacked him the day after impeachment at a prayer breakfast and in the East Room. It's a lot of unpleasantness. It's unclear what the real consequences are. And for what it's worth, Romney, the first thing he did after he voted, he flew home, he flew to Utah, and he met with the state legislature. And one of the things he told them privately was, look, this we don't know yet, but this may make my job harder. It may make it harder for me to be a legislator. I'm not going to sugarcoat that. But he said, I am not going to stop fighting for the legislation that is important to me and for the legislation that is important to Utah. And we don't know how that will play out yet. Romney's not the only member of the GOP that Trump over the course of the past three years has butted heads with. He proposed a 2020 budget this week something that the White House does every year and makes its way through Congress. But this 2020 budget is expected to request $2 billion in homeland security spending for Trump's southern border wall. And this is a bit of a bold request because Congress has shown strong opposition to Trump's use of basically national emergency powers to take money from the Pentagon and to use that money for the wall. And there are ongoing legal battles over this. Republicans have pushed back against this. Of course, Democrats have pushed back as well. Why would Trump try to request even more money for the wall at this point in time when he's faced tensions with Congress over this particular matter? Because the wall is one of his singular promises and platforms that he ran on. And it's something that every single one of his core fervent supporters cares about. And he he understands that. He's also a builder. And so he understands sort of the power of it, not just being a an abstract promise, 
but as he would say, a big, physical, beautiful wall. He understands that it's important to his base that he always be viewed as fighting for this. And frankly, we think of the president as someone with not a ton of ideological convictions. That is somewhat true. But there are a few convictions he has had, and he's had them not just since his campaign, but again, for decades. If you look back at his books when he was just a real estate developer, and one of them has been being very tough on immigration. So it's something, it's the perfect storm of something he actually cares about and something his base cares about and something he understands that his base cares about. And when you go to dozens and dozens of Trump rallies, as I have, one of the, you know, people often talk about them as rock concerts with a with a musician or a politician often playing some of their greatest hits and something you can always be assured of is there will come a moment when the crowd will chant, build the wall and, you know, Trump will say, well, who's going to pay for it? And they'll say Mexico, even though as we're talking about the U.S.'s budget, there's actually no indication that Mexico is going to pay for this wall. But it is core to who he is and what his campaign is. All right. Well, that's a perfect segue to the last thing I want to address with you, which is how Trump is ramping up some of his campaigning since his acquittal and since the Democratic primary has started to heat up. So how is Trump using this moment to really rile up his base? So he is, I mean, he's continuing to have rallies. Now, of course, the impeachment hoax, as he calls it, has become another one of those greatest hits we think of in his rallies. And I wouldn't be surprised if he continues to bring it up. You know, one might think that the president, as Bill Clinton did, would want to move past impeachment and on to the business of governing and campaigning. But the president will will still continue, at least so far, to talk about impeachment in part because it allows himself to play the victim, to play to his own grievances, to pay, play to the grievances of his base, and to have an opponent. He likes to consider himself a counterpuncher, um, but he is often best when he has an opponent, and this gives him something to fight against. And you're also seeing him just in general using campaign rallies. He's going to places where the Democrats are. He's coming in where there's media who are there to cover the 15 Democrats, and he's holding a huge rally that's dominating the cable coverage, that's getting the headlines of the newspapers, that's drawing reporters who normally cover Bernie Sanders or Pete Buttigieg. They're coming out to see what the Trump show is like. And in many ways, the Trump show is quite impressive. It's huge rallies filled with greatest hits, fans who were packed in and have stood in line in the freezing cold for hours. And he loves to get those images out there. And Trump's behavior at these rallies, including his public criticism of his Democratic opponents and now his choice to hold rallies in Democratic primary states, that's typically not how incumbent presidents who are running for re-election approach the opposite party's primary race. But, but has Trump proven that perhaps perceived consequences that led other presidents to proceed with caution in this arena maybe don't exist anymore? Again, it, it's a great question, and we don't entirely know. But yes, Trump so far has proven himself generally impervious to the traditional rules of political gravity and the traditional rules of consequences. It's hard to imagine a voter simply saying, you know, I supported President Trump in 2016, but gosh, now that he's been impeached, I just can't imagine voting for him again. I think the more corrosive to the president cumulative effect, maybe there is some small universe of voters who it's not one thing. It's not impeachment. It's not the fight over 
the budget for the border wall. It's not the nasty tweets. It's not the way he has inserted himself into the Democratic primary and following them all around the country and bestowing nasty nicknames on Twitter. It, it is the cumulative effect of all of that where they just get exhausted and say, I want something else. And it's not one of those things. It's just everything. And that is kind of the key question that we'll see in November. What do all of these pieces reveal about how Trump views his own role as president and his role as perhaps the leader of the GOP? I mean, I, I think it's less how he views a certain role or set of responsibilities he has and more that he feels increasingly now, I mean, we've talked about emboldened, but that he's the president of the United States and he can and should be able to do exactly what he wants. So far, there has been no red line that he's crossed that has led to any real consequences. I will say briefly, there there are moments, and it's hard it's hard to predict them, but where the president goes too far and he realizes he's gone too far. And you do see a little bit, I don't quite want to say contrition, but you see backtracking. A lot of those issues actually happen to be on topics of race. When he said both sides were to blame in Charlottesville, when he said, when he sent out that tweet saying that the squad, these are, of course, four minority congresswomen, he said they should go back to the countries from which they came. You know, they're all U.S. citizens. Stuff like that, there is sometimes an unexpected backlash, and you'll see him falter a bit before he tries to regain his footing. So I think in sort of surprising ways, he will sometimes step over the line and recalibrate. But I think for prosecutors withdrawing from a case involving Roger Stone and the Justice Department is not going to be the red line that stops this president from behaving as he wants to behave. And do you think since his acquittal, that line has moved further out for him? I think that line has moved further out, and I think the thing he recognizes is sort of polling when he starts to lose his base or when he starts to lose that other sliver of voters who who he needs to win in 2020. I don't think seeing people on TV or former Justice Department officials, I don't think that hand-wringing means anything to him. This is a president who wants to win re-election in November, and, and when that starts to falter is when you may see him slightly chastened. All right, Ashley, thank you so much for your time. Thank you. This has been another episode of Can He Do That? Do me a favor. If you liked it, share it. Send out a tweet. Send an email to a friend. Make a TikTok. Whatever you want to do, please share this episode. And thank you so much for listening. Can He Do That is a team effort here at The Post. It's produced by the brilliant Carol Alderman with help from Ariel Plotnick, design help from Kat Rudell-Brooks, logo art by Loren Boglio, and theme music by Ted Muldoon. There's always more to the story. I'm Leanne Caldwell, anchor of Washington Post Live. Each week, we bring you inside conversations between the newsroom and the people we cover. From global leaders enacting change to cutting-edge artists redefining our culture. And we make you and your questions part of every conversation. Listen to Washington Post Live wherever you get your podcasts and watch on demand at WashingtonPostLive.com.